Eastwood's latest suggests that judging someone based on appearances and assumptions can lead to injustice and tragedy. That's Paul Assay of Plugged In. Richard Jewell, one of the films we're reviewing this week, the special Oscars edition here of Cinephile as we're previewing what's going to go down uh, this Sunday. It should be an awful lot of fun. As always, thank you so much for checking us out. I appreciate the love you're giving us on Apple Podcasts. Please do subscribe, rate, and review The Bad Guy 127, perhaps a Billie Eilish fan, uh, putting a, a message here. Salazzo Strikes. I love that. That's from Salazzo in Portland, Oregon. Love that. Thank you for chiming in. Doc Lou, Iowa, supporting Stephen King. Also giving some love and as well to Chiz Lero. Thank you so much to all of you for your reviews. It really means a lot. It keeps us going here on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. As I mentioned, uh, we'll be reviewing Richard Jewell, also animated film I Lost My Body, which is up for Best Animated Film, and also one of the Best Documentary nominees, uh, The Edge of Democracy. So all three films, as I had mentioned previously, you know, the one, uh, my one white whale, so to speak, that I was missing in my oeuvre of Oscar viewing for 2020 was Richard Jewell. So when I knocked that out last week, I said, perfect. Now I've seen all the nominees, not only in the acting categories, I was 19 of 20. I just had to watch Kathy Bates and Richard Jewell, who was terrific. And now I'm at 20 for 20. And overall, I've seen all the nominees for Best Picture, Director, Actor, Supporting Actor, Actress, Supporting Actress, Original Screenplay, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Editing, Original Score, Production Design, Costume Design, Visual Effects, Sound Editing, Sound Mixing. And as my friend Joe said, how are your eyes doing? Joe, you're a little bit worried about me. Let's be honest. Oh man, I know, I know that you had uh, LASIK surgery a few years ago, but you just—I don't want you to get glasses again. That's a lot of blue light. You got to make sure that you're not near the TV before you go to bed, or otherwise you can't fall asleep. That's a lot of movies, Adnan. Ugh, you're right. It's been a lot of movies, but it's been a lot of fun. So uh, what we'll do is, well, as we break down the BAFTAs, what just happened at the British version of the Academy Awards, we'll, we'll kind of do our Oscar predictions on the fly, me and Joe together. As I mentioned, those three movies, BAFTAs, other news involving Jerry Seinfeld, who I just saw at the BBWAA, Baseball Writers Association of America dinner, and also my man Ben Lyons, burying the lead. Of course, Ben is a dear friend. He's the best. But he's going to tell us about his Sundance experience. He watched 15 movies while he was there in Utah. He'll tell us uh, which one was the best, which one's making the most buzz. Uh, and next year, we're going to have Manola Dargis of the New York Times, who was also at Sundance, and she'll be joining us next week post-Oscars. So let's get right to it and talk about Richard Jewell. During the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, security guard Richard Jewell discovers a suspicious backpack under a bench in Centennial Park. With little time to spare, he helps to evacuate the area until the incendiary device inside the bag explodes. Hailed as a hero who saved lives, Jewell's own life starts to unravel when the FBI names him the prime suspect in the bombing. For Clint Eastwood, it's uh, something of a return to form. You know, he's really been kind of a mixed bag over the last six, seven, or eight years, you know, he had this late great renaissance, of course, Unforgiven in 1992, and, uh, you know, wins the Academy Award, Best Picture, Best Director, et cetera. You know, Letters from Iwo Jima, I thought was terrific. Uh, Flags of Our Fathers is all right. Million Dollar Baby, one of my favorite movies of the century. That was 2004. So think about it. You go, 04, 06, Flags of Our Fathers, 07, Letters from Iwo Jima. And then it gets a little kind of wonky, you know, depending on your feeling of Grand Torino. I thought it was good, it had its moments, but it was a little bit uh, far-fetched at times. And then he has a real bomb with 1517 to Paris. So now we have Richard Jewell, which comes in late into the race. You go, okay, maybe this is going to be an Oscar-type movie coming up mid-December. Instead, it's Eastwood's worst film, at least financially, in 40 years since Bronco Billy, and it got mixed to good reviews. So what the hell happened? That's why I was a little bit hesitant to watch it, but I can tell you this. The best reason to watch the film is the trio performances. First off, Paul Walter Hauser as Richard Jewell. He was in I, Tonya, playing one of the psychics. He's fantastic in this movie because he comes across 
as one of these security guards who's a little bit bumbling, has a bit of an authority complex, you know, he kind of gets off on the fact he's in charge and certainly likes the limelight. But at the same time, he's just a simple guy. He's, he's not anything more complicated than what he appears to be, which is a security guard who has greater ambitions. He's not, as the way the FBI paints him, a guy who has delusions of grandeur, who would actually plant a bomb. That way he can be hailed as a hero. That's just so outrageous within this guy's life. And he just plays him so well with this type of simplicity and this kind of Southern charm and his good manners, et cetera, as a guy who is literally overwhelmed by the situation and wants to placate the FBI as much as possible because the fact he has such respect for law enforcement. That's some of the funnier moments of the movies. You see him just yes sir, no sir, even as he realizes he's being railroaded by these guys. The other performance, as I mentioned, is Kathy Bates. She's nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She actually nudged out Annette Benning for the report, and I think that was the right decision. Bates, as always, is such a strong presence. At times, I think she can be a bit excessive, but here she's downplaying. I mean, she's playing the mother, Richard Jewell, who is obviously very proud of her son at first, and he's the one who discovers the bombing, and then she's very concerned because she lives with her son, and all of a sudden you get FBI coming in and you know, ransacking the place. And why are they taking my Tupperware? Seriously, why are, where are they taking my Tupperware? Where are they going to go with my Tupperware? And she gives one particular speech, which is excellent, uh, later in the film in which she addresses the media and addresses the FBI themselves after the third performance orchestrates it all. That would be the great Sam Rockwell, another in a long line of idiosyncratic performances playing the defense attorney, Watson Bryant. The movie starts a little bit clunky at first. The first scene is is with Richard Jewell, you know, as he's one of these, you know, young guys up and coming who's stocking Sam Rockwell's desk with Snickers bars because he knows the lawyer loves his Snickers. And then the story fast forwards to years later as to what happens at Centennial Park. And then the one lawyer who Richard Jewell knows he can trust is, oh, that guy from years ago who was nice to me, who I used to buy Snickers bars. So I thought it was a little bit far-fetched of a connection, but apparently it is true that uh, Richard Jewell was friends with an attorney years ago. Then later on, he was like the one friend he had. And that this attorney, Watson Bryant, played by Rockwell, did truly believe that this guy was being railroaded. So you've got this trio of excellent performances. You've got uh, the sturdy, capable direction of Clint Eastwood. As always, it's no frills. He's not a guy who's quickly flashy with the camera, and I think that makes sense in this story. It's fairly straightforward, and it's always rather stark, particularly the scene where the bomb is spotted, I thought was really well orchestrated and skillfully directed by Eastwood. Um, but the problem is this. There's two major problems, one of which is normally when you're watching a film, you're not aware of the filmmaker's politics, you know, rightly or wrongly, you just kind of watch the film. But in this case, you're clearly aware of the fact that Clint Eastwood is a strict libertarian, which means he just hates government, hates media, hates it all. I mean, famously at the RNC, he spoke to an empty chair when he was mimicking speaking to Barack Obama. And that's fine if he's a, you know, a huge raging Republican and would do whatever you want. But in this film, as a libertarian, it's very obvious that he is making the two scapegoats of this entire saga and making them about as one dimension as possible, the U.S. government and the media. And again, there's some elements of this story which absolutely are true. Richard Jewell was railroaded by the FBI. He was unfairly treated by the media. But I just thought that the characters, those three that are so well played, have nuance and depth and complexity. And the other characters were so wooden and so one note, it takes away from the story because they're so poorly written and poorly acted. I mean, I love John Hamm. He's a great actor, but he's so single-minded as Tom Shaw, the FBI guy, that it almost seems far-fetched that this guy would be that ludicrously um, vigilant about thinking that this guy committed it. And some of the practices that they were doing was just awful. But the real problem, of course, is Olivia Wilde. Not only the character as written, because the famous scene which everyone has been talking about, Kathy Scruggs, who died years ago, who died after a drug overdose, you know, years after this case and, you know, was dealing with guilt and other issues along with it, had a lot of health issues. 
she's not here to defend herself. And the movie shows Olivia Wilde playing Kathy Scruggs, offering to sleep with John Hamm's character in order to get some information as to what's going on, who's the prime suspect. And it's just, I mean, listen, I know it's not a documentary. You got to take chances with things, but it's just so ridiculous that you would have this journalist sleeping with this guy to get some info, then put the info. And then, of course, you know, she comes across as this huge villain that she's making Richard Jewell into something he's not. She's plastering all over the paper. And there's a scene where she walks back to her desk. They start giving her like a standing ovation. I said, okay, this is beyond ridiculous. I've worked in the media my whole life. I've never seen a standing ovation given to a journalist for getting a story. And even the way she plays it, you know, listen, she's beautiful and she's a good actress, but it's just so uh, ham-handed the way she's just so juicy for a scoop and willing to sleep with anybody and have a few drinks and just tenacious. I mean, it's just... It's like bad acting 101. So ultimately, I'm going to give Richard Jewell three Maple Leafs because those trio performances are so good. And you absolutely feel empathy for this guy. You know, the real life Richard Jewell, you know, later was exonerated of these charges. But it seems in some ways never recovered. He also died prematurely. He also tried to uh, put a case against uh, the newspaper. And I think also the police, you know, this was unwarranted and unfair what they did to me. So I would agree with Peter Bradshaw, who says, in many ways, it's a very good story, efficiently told, and that's down to the excellent and very plausible performance from Paul Walter Hauser. This is another one here from Clarice Lowry. In Clint Eastwood's hands, Richard Jewell becomes a martyr to the director's career-long cause, heroism when it exists in direct opposition to authority. That is true. He is really anti-media, anti-government, and because of that, I don't think it's a fully formed movie. I still recommend it, and I still enjoyed it. Richard Jewell. Three Maple Leafs, Joe. Floor is yours. Clint Eastwood took a lot of liberties, it sounds like. As a result, Kathy Bates seems to elevate the movie. Do you think that she'll get supporting actress or be able to make a run over Laura Dern for Marriage Story because of it? No, Laura Dern's been sweeping everything, and so she's definitely a lock. But like I said, I, I knew, you know, as the way that I'm able to see all these damn things because the screener. So I, I watch all these movies in succession as they come. That's why I think people always get confused. They go, how, how did you watch all these movies in one month? I'm like, well, I didn't. Like, I watched them year round. And of course, when you start to hear buzz around a performance, you see it. So I watched, you know, the report maybe a month ago because of the fact Annette Benning was getting support for Best Supporting Actress. And then after I saw it, I didn't think she was that good. So when I saw Kathy Bates and Richard Jewell, I'm like, all right, well, I'm glad Kathy Bates got nominated. But in order to your question, Joe, no, I, I think of the nominees when I looked at them, she definitely stands out. I mean, I was very happy that Scarlett Johansson also got nominated for Jojo Rabbit, but Bates has won once before, of course, lead actress for Misery. She was also nominated before supporting actress, very funny, in About Schmidt, which we recently talked about on Total Recall. But no, she's not going to be able to win for this performance. In this case, the nomination is the win, as they say. Gotcha, gotcha. Then I will be tuning out for that one. <laughs> All right, a couple more to go through here. One is I Lost My Body, another Academy Award nominee for Best Animated Film. And this is quite different. In a Parisian laboratory, a severed hand escaped its unhappy fate and sets out to reconnect with its body in this Cannes Critics Week selection. During a hair-raising escapade across the city, the extremity fends off pigeons and rats alike to urinate with Pizza Boy at Naufel. Its memories of Naufel and his love for librarian Gabriel may provide answers about what caused the hand separation and a poetic backdrop for a possible reunion between the three. It's based on the novel Happy Hand by Academy Award nominee Guillaume Laurent. It's directed by Jeremy Clapin, and it's also uh, co-written by Guillaume Laurent, who also, uh, of course, wrote the novel, which I just mentioned, which it was based on. So I don't think it's going to win. I believe it's going to be Toy Story 4, although... A Klaus just won the BAFTA award for Best Animated Movie, and the real surprise of the Golden Globes was Missing Link pulled off the win. I mean, that's huge for uh, Yetis and Sasquatches everywhere. But in the case of I Lost My Body, you'll always get one of these in there. You go, hey, it's, it's a cartoon movie, okay, but it's not a cartoon. This is uh, for adults. 
And early on, there's a sex scene. So I was like, oh, God, I have a mistake putting this on in front of the kids. Let's turn this sucker <laughs> off. But it's available on Netflix. It's a quick little movie, 85 minutes. It has a lot more meaning to it than it once thought. Like when you think to yourself, I lost my body. What the hell is this? But it's about this dismembered hand. And it's a metaphor for, I think, a lot of things. Disassociation today in life. Uh, trying to be in synchronicity at one. Uh, it's also a love story. And when you get how exactly the hand was severed, it ends up being a very tragic story. I'm going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs. Like I said, it's not going to win the Oscar. And I didn't think it was compelling from start to finish, but I did think it was a different story. And I appreciate uh, adult themes done through animation. Because I think oftentimes, you know, you just kind of take it for granted that animated films are going to be for children. But I think that it deals with like adult content and mature themes. I think it's actually um, more potent in some ways. As Peter DeBruge of Variety wrote, one of the most original and creative animated features I've ever seen. Remarkably captivating and unexpectedly moving. Uh, Kenneth Turan as well from the LA Times. As inventive a piece of animation as you're likely to see, the extraordinary I Lost My Body is about a hand with a mind of its own. And if that sounds a little crazy, this dark, strange, and altogether wonderful feature will make you believe. Uh, Kenneth Turan of the LA Times. Mark Simon also giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. Joe, have you had a chance to watch I Lost My Body yet? I haven't yet. I'm, I'm excited to do so, but it, it seems like of all the categories at the Oscars for this year's animated feature films are the biggest toss-up with Missing Link winning, Claus winning the BAFTA, Toy Story 4, as you mentioned. I, it, who, do, who do you think will win on Sunday? Uh, you know, I think it's going to be Toy Story 4, although that would be the 17th category I will have seen when I get through Missing Link. I watched 40 minutes recently on the flight to Miami for the Super Bowl. By the way, highlight of the Super Bowl, of course, the Martin Scorsese commercial. Unbelievable. I'm a huge <laughs> Pepsi guy. Now i got to drink Coke because of Marty and Jonah Hill. I mean, that was fantastic. $5.6 million. How much did they give Marty for that? It was awesome. Anyways, the fact Missing Link won the Globe is interesting, but I think Toy Story 4, Joe, I think generally that's the one. It won the Critics' Choice Award. Critics' Choice is always a pretty good indicator. Um, but I think the the Annie, which I believe is the Animation Award, I don't think it was Toy Story 4, so you're right. It's fairly wide open, and the fact that Klaus won, which is available on Netflix, but a mailman set during Christmas time, that just won the BAFTA. You're right. It's pretty wide open. But I would lean Toy Story 4. You know, the one surprise is that Frozen 2 wasn't even nominated. So that was a surprise there as well. And I, I know Missing Link, at least, that was the same studio that did uh, Kubo and the Two Strings. So it's all yes. um, stop motion animation, right? Right. And that's what I was noticing on the plane. I didn't know anything about it except the fact it won the Globe. And I mean, stop motion animation, I mean, as you know, it, it's incredibly difficult. So when I was watching it, it, two things. One, I was enjoying, like I said, the performances. It's funny. You know, it's tongue in cheek. And secondly, I'm like, stop motion is just like, it's a different level. So I'm actually... Like I said, I haven't finished it yet, so I don't want to cast my vote, so to speak, but I, I would be happy to see Missing Link get a, get a win because that would reward stop-motion animation, which is particularly painstaking within the world of animation. Great. I'll be on the lookout for it. Nice. And the last we discuss, Academy Award nominated for Best Documentary, that is Edge of Democracy. A cautionary tale for these times of democracy and crisis, the personal and political fuse to explore one of the most dramatic periods in Brazilian history with unprecedented access to President Dilma Rousseff and Lula da Silva, we witnessed a rise and fall and the tragically polarized nation that remains. So clearly, you know, the filmmaker who is <laughs> about as subjective as it gets is drawing parallels to what's happening in America. You know, it's about the rise of right wing fascism and having a dictator as a president and why exactly that's dangerous and the impact it can make on the populace. And while understanding uh, making that connection and seeing some validity within it. I found it as a documentary being incredibly boring. I mean, I'm getting this one and a half Maple Leafs. So far, the documentaries, I, I mean, I panned Honeyland. I'm now panning the edge of democracy. 
I give American Factory a lukewarm two maple leaf. I mean, I think American Factory is going to win, produced by the Obamas. But the other two I haven't seen, uh, For Sama, which I believe just won the BAFTA, and the other documentary nominee, which fails my mind right now. But I got to tell you, of the document, I've seen three of the five, and all three I've been underwhelmed by. Honeyland, I didn't like. I certainly didn't like The Edge of Democracy. And American Factory, I thought was mediocre. Uh, I'm in the minority, at least when it comes to the critics here. David Ehrlich of IndieWire calls The Edge of Democracy an angry, intimate, haunting portrait of Brazil's recent slide back to the open jaws of dictatorship. And Leslie Felpern of Guardian says Costa manages to craft an intimate primer about the state's descent into populism and the fraying of the country's democratic fabric. I mean, Dan Stanzik even said to me, he was on his phone most of the time. Joe, I'm glad you saw it. What do you think? Because I just was not engaged from start to finish. You bring up a good point. It is it is slow and long. I personally did like it. I did like the uh, parallels that they were trying to drop, but... You're right. It is unless I had to take a few breaks myself while watching it. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. If I were to give it, I would probably give it two and a half maple leaves. Um, right. If I were to rate it, but overall, I did like it, and I think the story is worth being told. Yeah, I think you're right. I think sometimes that there's definitely subject matter which is important, but as far as being compelling, I mean, if you had to watch this with your phone off in one sitting, that ain't happening, right? No, no. I, I found myself like looking at my phone too you know what i mean at times i was like what's happening on instagram wait wait i'm missing something here there's subtitles i can't just i have to right. watch it yeah <laughs> never ever the best ringing endorsement for a film but <laughs> I, I want to knock those all out of the way because they're all academy award nominated so richard jewell i lost my body and edge of democracy will all be uh, playing a part in some part here at the Oscars this Sunday. Let's get to the Baptist, how it relates to the Oscars coming up. So best film was 1917. Of course, the Brits are going to love it. It also won Outstanding British Film over the Two Popes and Rocket Man. So right now, listen, 1917 is the favorite, okay? You're doing your Oscar ballots. I think 1917 is going to win Best Picture. I think Parasite's got a chance, but if I was putting some money down, I'd go 1917 Best Picture. i put Sam Mendes, Best Director. He's now won the Golden Globe. He won the DGA, which is the Director's Guild Award, and he just won the BAFTA for Best Director. So Mendes is going to be Bong Joon-ho and my man Marty. Documentary I mentioned earlier was for Sama, but I do think American Factory plays better with the with this audience over here in America. Animated film was Klaus, so I don't know what to expect. I think Toy Story 4 does end up winning the Oscar. Uh, foreign language film, of course, is Parasite. That's a lock. What's interesting now is screenplays. The original screenplay might go to Parasite. I would have thought before the award season started that Noah Baumbach had that in the bag. I think Marriage Story's script is so explosive and uh, so poignant and so well-written. Uh, but I think now Parasite actually went for screenplay. Which, listen, uh, the more Parasite, the better. I think Parasite's the better movie than Marriage Story. Adapted screenplay, I'm pushing hard for, for I don't want to see a shutout here for The Irishman, obviously. Nobody's cheering for that film more than me. So I'm praying that Stephen Zellian can win for The Irishman for adapted screenplay, but I'm not sure what's going to go down. As far as the acting awards, listen, it's been so by the book. We're just praying for an upset at this point. Joaquin Phoenix wins Best Actor for Joker. Best Actress is Renee Zellweger for Judy. Best Supporting Actress, Brad Pitt, who gave a funny speech. He wasn't there, but again, made fun of himself, teased the Brits a little bit. Brexit's going on, in case you haven't heard. He wins Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress was Laura Dern. Cinematography, absolute lock. Again, Oscar ballots, 1917. The great Roger Deakins is going to win his second Oscar in his 15th nomination. Uh, but speaking of Joaquin Phoenix, he took a shot at the BAFTAs. He goes up there, wins his award. How about this? You just win an award from this organization, and then he smashed them for their lack of diversity. I mean, the BAFTAs, even more so than the Globes or the Critics' Choice or even the Oscars, really did not show any representation towards people of color. So, Joe, how about Joaquin Phoenix? I mean, he's been really good with his speeches, and he took a shot at the BAFTAs after he gets an award from them. Yeah, I was. I did not see that coming. I'm glad, I'm glad he did it, though. It just seems 
like more it's what he said it's taken on systemic racism in uh hollywood and foreign films and so yeah i'm glad he said it but kind of a uh, ballsy to to do that up on stage after getting an award from them so yeah, yeah no doubt. crazy uh, best original score again i'm upset thomas newman did not win for 1917 a uh, joker wins again so our girl holder i think is going to win the oscar as well so Oscar Boutwise, listen, 1970 clearly has a lot of momentum right now, whether it's visual effects or any of those types of categories. Some other news here before we get to Ben Lyons, who's going to give us his report from Sundance. And don't forget, Total Recall, we're going to focus in on 1996. So the 1997 Oscars, the 1996 movies, which was the year of the indies. Jerry Maguire, the only film from a studio that was nominated among the major awards, which is interesting because this year they're saying... What happened to all the indies? A24's Uncut Gems, The Farewell, Aquafina. Obviously, Adam Sandler was ignored. Last Black Man in San Francisco. Like, none of the indies were able to break through this year. Well, we go back to 1996 for Total Recall when all the indies uh, made a lot of noise, like Secrets and Lies, Fargo, etc. And in terms of Mount Rushmore, we're going to do Best Animated Film. So all that more coming up. First off, how about Seinfeld, who I just saw a week ago at the BBWAA? He's got a first book of comedy in more than 25 years being released October 6th, a decade-by-decade career-spanning collection of his favorite material. Seinfeld said in a statement, whenever I came up with a funny bit, whether it happened on a stage in a conversation or working it on my preferred canvas, the big yellow legal pad, I kept it in one of those old-school accordion folders. So I have every piece of stand-up comedy I thought was worth saying from 45 years of hacking away at this for all I was worth. His last comedy book, Sign Language, S-E-I-N, was released in 1993 when his popularity was surging. That sold uh, two and a half million copies. 2002, he also wrote a children's book called Halloween, which I was unaware of. But how about Seinfeld? What I'm always amazed here, and Joan, you know this having done stand-up. Um, you know, when I read Gary Shanling's book, which Judd Apatow put together, a collection of all Shanling's material, these guys keep everything. I mean, every joke, every little bit, like they, they jot down stuff everywhere. Like it's amazing, the accumulation of material over a lifetime of comedy. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And Jerry Seinfeld, I, I've never had the privilege of seeing him do live stand-up, but everyone I know who's seen him just says he's the best living stand-up comedian ever. And to ha- for him to put out a book of 45 years worth of material, that ha- that has to be a must-read. It has to be, right? Oh, I agree. My brother's a huge fan of his. I mean, people love Seinfeld for good reason. He was really funny to his speech when he was awarding Pete Alonzo. Uh, rookie of the Year. Also, Lethal Weapon 5 is set to happen. Are you kidding me? Riggs and Murtaugh, again, another sequel. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, the fact that these guys will not go. Director Richard Donner is coming back. The original cast is coming back. They've been trying to make this forever. Writer Jez Butterworth was the one who was working on the script. But Mel and Danny are ready to go, so it was all about the script. The last film, Lethal Weapon 4, was released in 1998. I mean, listen, I like Lethal Weapon as much as the next guy. Joe Pesci, fantastic. Riggs and Murtaugh, I mean, very iconic duo, but enough's enough. Come on, five installments, Joe. I, listen, I understand there's like a 20 Fast and the Furiouses, but how many lethal weapons can one man take? Yeah, I'm not I'm not going to be there for this. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it just seems too much. And they're older now, nothing wrong with that, but are they going to be doing the same stunts, the same antics, all that? I don't know. Yeah, there's no way that... Like Danny Glover's gonna be able to pull off the stuff he used to do years ago. I mean, that's you're right. I mean, this is this is kind of like a grumpy old man here. Uh, I don't right. know. Right, sciatica's acting up. You know what? What are you gonna do? <laughs> All right, look forward to Lethal Weapon Five. Now it's time for our special guest, a Lethal Weapon all his own. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. 
a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. We welcome back to the podcast, of course, one of our good friends, the great Ben Lyons, the Lions Den, back from Sundance where he avoided any sort of viral throat illness, unlike me a couple of years ago. The Festival Rules podcast series at Sundance this year. you got to check it out. It's Ben and Josh Horowitz, who's another awesome dude, getting lots of great interviews, putting it all together. So before we dive into specific interviews and moments, Ben, tell us a little bit about the Festival Rules and what this podcast series that you and Josh were doing together was at Sundance. Well, thanks so much, man, for, for having me back on the show. You're right. It wasn't the same without you. Everyone was healthy. <laughs> we had a, a wonderful few days in in Park City, and Josh and I, along with Action Park Media, put this project together because, as you know, we love Sundance. It's the birthplace of so much creativity, discovery of so many new voices, so we wanted to create a new platform in a way for people to really kind of learn the language and experience what it's like to be there, as you know from now having been on the ground at uh, you know, in Park City, it's a, it's a lot. And there's a lot of movies, a lot of passes, a lot of things you need to know. So the idea was to combine our interviews and reviews with some tips and tidbits and anecdotes of kind of how to navigate festivals because they are a beast unto themselves. And this year was really special, man. I got, I got lucky. I saw a lot of great stuff. Well, I love this. One of your Instagram posts, but Andy Samberg freaking out about Redford. I, I know we talked last week about how great the Samberg movie is, which you can tell me about in a second. But first, tell me about the moment with Redford. <laughs> well, you know, Sundance, you're in these makeshift media lounges and you're in close proximity. Everybody's on top of each other. Um, and the, the, the folks at NRDC hosted us all weekend and they had a meeting with Robert Redford, who I believe is one of their board members. And we knew that Redford would be coming there at some point in the afternoon. I got to be honest, Adney, and I've been out there 15 years and I've seen him three times. I mean, forget Kristaps Porzingis. He's the unicorn. Like, I can't <laughs> never see him at Sunday. And, right. and uh, we knew that he'd be coming in for a meeting. And as the, the podcast gods would have it, when asked which star he would be most starstruck by, should he see him at Sundance, Andy Samberg said right on cue, Robert Redford, and sure enough, the guy walked in two minutes later. It was super weird, and Sandberg lost it, and it was great, and it's so much fun to see like when, when one star loses it for another, right? And then Sienna Miller's going up to Sandberg and saying, "Hey, I love the Lonely Island videos. Can I get in one of those one day?" Like just the the exchange of energy amongst artists is really cool, and you can listen to Andy lose his shit on our podcast when Redford mm -hmm. walks in. Once again, the Festival Rules podcast, like you said, the, the experience is like no other. I encourage anybody, if you're a lover of movies, independent movies specifically, but if you like great documentaries, I mean, the Eccles Theater, the whole environment of it, it, it really is special to what you're talking about. Tell me about Sandberg's movie, which is a huge hit uh, and a big acquisition as well. Highest selling film ever out of Sundance back in, I believe, 2016. Fox Searchlight acquired Birth of a Nation for $17.5 million. Well, this year, Neon and Hulu bought Palm Springs for $17.5 million. 
and 69 cents, making it the highest selling film ever out of Sundance. So <laughs> the movie stars Andy and Kristen Milioti, who's brilliant, along with J.K. Simmons in a crazy role. It's a wedding weekend. There's kind of a Groundhog Day element to it. I don't want to give it away, but I needed a laugh, especially this year. And it just was that movie that hit you at the right time, and it crushed. I did, however, have a sorry to bother you Adnan Virk Sundance moment this year with Josh. We were, we were about 45 minutes or an hour into a film called Nine Days, starring Winston Duke and Zazie Beetz and Tony Hale. It's about... I don't know what it's about. And we just kind of looked at each other halfway through. And he gave me the Joaquin Phoenix in Gladiator, thumbs up or thumbs down. And we both just were like, what are we? We just, this has made no sense to us. Once the movie's over, we look on Twitter. Of course, Adnan, of course, people are tweeting. The race for Oscar 2021 starts now. Nine days. What are you talking about? This is like, Army Hammer and sorry to bother you with Horsecock. Like, what's going on here? We have no idea. So Sundance will give you uh, some moments that will inspire you for the rest of your life and other moments that will make you question your existence. Yeah, I'll never forget that sorry to bother you moment. I mean, looking at you, I mean, like, what the hell is this? And you and I are both thankfully on the same page. As you know, there's nothing worse, Ben. If you're sitting next to a guy, and he's like, what What are you missing? Like, this is a great film. And I was worried that's what you were thinking. Thankfully, no, you were right there with me going, this is ridiculous. It's, you know, it's trying way too hard. And it's just bizarre and whatever. And then afterwards, 94% Rotten Tomatoes. Sorry to bother you. Great film. Oh, it's so incisive yeah, and no, social satire. Like, what? Same thing's going to happen with Nine Days. Watch Nine Days with Winston Duke. Everyone's going going to be Rotten Tomatoes, the best movie. The movie makes no sense. I applaud them for getting into Sundance and playing at Echoes. Tremendous accomplishment. It was probably, along with some weird Jeremy Piven movie I saw years ago, and sorry to bother you, amongst my top five all-time worst at Sundance. <laughs> Um, listen, I always appreciate, Ben, how much you love documentaries. And uh, I remember, I think it was last year, you were telling me about Maiden. You definitely were, 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 were sounding the alarm for Maiden. I can't remember if you saw it at Sundance or just in general, you were raving about it. And unfortunately, it did not get nominated, which is inexplicable because the two documentaries I heard that were unbelievable were Maiden, because you talked about it, and Apollo 11, which everyone said was great. And both those movies somehow did not get nominated for Best Documentary for the Oscars coming up this Sunday. Go figure. In terms of documentaries yeah. that stood out for you, what did you see? Well, you're absolutely right, Adnan. I was surprised both of those fell short to the Oscars. But if you look at the last three years at the Academy Awards, not only has every film that, that's won Best Documentary premiered at Sundance, Free Solo, Icarus, The People vs. O.J., but uh, the O.J. Simpson thing for, for ESPN, um, uh, now they're all sports movies, too. Uh, which is interesting. This year, uh, ESPN was back with a couple sports films. Uh, won a multi-part series on Lance Armstrong, which uh, was very polarizing, obviously, as is Lance. My takeaway is that guy just seems like a dick. Uh, and then <laughs> Bruce Lee uh, documentary, Be Water, masterfully done, beautiful documentary, an ode to an artist, a true artist. Um, I really enjoyed that. Non-sports films, I saw The Truffle Hunters from Michael Dwick and Gregory Kershaw, same guys who did The Last Race, which is a film I saw at Sundance a few years ago. It's about these old men in the northern Alba Mountains of Italy who search the woods for truffles. 
along with their dogs that sniff them out. There's a dog cam that's mounted on the heads of these hounds that really immerses you into what it's like to look through the woods for truffles. It's a dying art. These men take great pride in knowing their secret spots. It's all Italian, really verite. And you switch gears and you see another movie that just breaks your heart out there, Rebuilding Paradise. This is from Ron Howard, who uh, was kind enough to spend some time with us on the Festival Rules podcast and talked about his uh, film about the devastating fires in California, Paradise, California, which uh, President Trump, of course, referred to as Pleasure, California, when he was up there. But no, it was Paradise, California, a community that's really representative of sort of the American dream in a lot of ways of finding your little slice of heaven, your little piece of paradise. And it was destroyed by these fires. Ron Howard working with local law enforcement to get access to body cams and uh, security footage to really immerse you in the fire from the opening of the movie. It's terrifying. And then it follows this community for 365 days as they try to rebuild and regain purpose in their life. It's just a beautiful film. And to get the chance to sit down you know, with Ron Howard and, and talk about how he crafts the documentary and it was his first time at Sundance and he's asking me and Josh what the rules are. And I say, don't share a bunk with Adnan or otherwise you're going to get sick and miss all the movies. So it was just amazing <laughs> to spend time with him and to be out there to be a part of that film, which honestly, Adnan, living in California, this film was the thing that made me realize that, oh my God, Katrina happened in my state. I didn't realize. I knew the fires were devastating, obviously, but I just to see that firsthand human impact and just the way storytelling can do that. Oh my God! It just it, it really it presented the whole thing to me in a, in a new way. That's awesome. Look forward to seeing it. We're talking with Ben Lines. Of course, you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram. I am Ben Lines. Here's some movies made a lot of buzz. Ben, according to 187 film journalist IndieWire, top movies included Minari, Promising Young Woman. Uh, never, rarely, sometimes, always. Dick Johnson is dead. The Truffle Hunters, which you just spoke about. Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, Crip Camp. Any thoughts on any of those if you had a chance to see them? Yeah, Crip Camp, heartwarming documentary that's on Netflix uh, about a uh, uh, camp for, uh, for people with special needs. Uh, what else? Zola is a wild movie that was inspired by a series of tweets, 150 of them to be exact, uh, about a, a woman who goes on a road trip from Detroit to Tampa to go dancing in strip clubs and all hell breaks loose. Nicholas Braun, who audiences know as Cousin Greg from Succession, he did our <laughs> podcast. He's the best. He plays this Florida wannabe bro. Like, it's just a nuts movie. Well, almost like a Spring Breakers. It's also from A24. They picked it up before the festival. Um, Wander Darkly, I don't think it was on the list you mentioned, but stars Sienna Miller and Diego Luna directed by Tara Mealy. She had the most beautiful opening uh, speech for a director. At Sundance, for anybody who hasn't been, before the film plays, the director is always afforded the opportunity to come and introduce the film and speak to the audience. Some directors use it as a moment to thank the cast and crew. Oftentimes, many of them are there. Others use it as an opportunity to thank every single person they have ever met in their entire life. Everyone <laughs> handles it differently. I've seen, I think I was counting about 190 or 200 movies at Sundance over the years, and I'd never seen someone just drop the mic in such a beautiful way. Tara said, 20 years ago, I directed a student film at Slam Dance, which is the alternative, indie, funky, kind of weird fringe festival that goes on during Sundance at the top of Main Street, on the top of the mountain. So she said, I did a student film 
20 years ago at Slamdance, and it took me 20 years to get down the mountain to play here at Sundance. Enjoy the film, everyone. And just drop them and let the movie speak for itself. And Wander Darkly with Sienna Miller and Diego Luna, story about a young couple on the east side of L.A., a car crash happens. She's trying to figure out the rest of the movie. Is she alive? Is she a ghost? It moves me unlike anything that's ever uh, moves me at Sundance. Adnan, you know I'm an emotional guy, and I just want to give a big shout-out to Josh Horowitz, who sat next to me for 90 minutes, 88 and a half of them, I was weeping, and he still calls me a friend to this day. He wasn't embarrassed. He didn't run out of the theater. He held me afterwards. I wept as we were waiting for the bus to go back to Main Street. I'm telling you, this movie is the one. Uh, what else is on that list? Uh, oh, Minari. That's a movie about a, a Korean family that moves to Arkansas in the 1980s. That movie it's about a kid's, he, he, be, kid gets tired of staring at chicken's butts, apparently. It's the movie at the festival, everyone talking about it. And just in a classic Sundance moment, as I'm waiting for my interview with Nick Braun, the little boy in the film is sitting in the hotel lobby and he starts teaching me words in Korean. Like, and and in 10, 10 years when that guy's like a huge movie star, I'm always going to laugh at that moment. You know, so a lot of young casts out there. Charm City Kings, another one about dirt bike gangs in Baltimore starring Meek Mill. Just one of those casts, like almost like Stand By Me, where you look at them all and you're like, oh, in 10 years, you guys are going to be doing it so it's uh it's just really fun to be out there despite not having to uh run to urgent care to check in on you <laughs> the festival rules i've just started subscribing i can't wait to listen i already gave it five stars as i'm looking nicholas braun remembering kobe aubrey plaza allison brie carrie mulligan plus alec baldwin uh, last one how is alec baldwin doing so this is great so alec baldwin and <laughs> he says I produced six movies this year, and he starts reeling off the titles, right? One of them was at Sundance, Beast Beast, which I really enjoyed. And then about four of the movies in, he starts to lose track, and he can't remember the names of the movies that he's produced. And he just says, uh, I produced The Irishman. Let's just tell everyone I produced The Irishman. So, <laughs> I, I thought a little Irishman shout-out at Sundance meant that your spirit was with us, Adnan. Oh, you're the best, man. I'm praying it does not go 0 for 10 this Sunday the way Gangs of New York did. So be still my beating heart. Maybe Steve's yelling can come through for adapted screenplay. Ben Lines always comes through for us. Uh, enjoy five hours of Gary Payton. The Festival Rules is the podcast currently an Apple podcast. <laughs> Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, you're the best, and we'll be texting a lot this Sunday. Enjoy the Oscars. Good luck, too. I know you're a big fan of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but we both love Parasite. It should be a fun night. Sundance 2021, dude. We got to get you back out to Park City and bring some lozenges this time. You, me, and Richard Schiff. Let's make it happen. <laughs> Take care, buddy. Love you. Mount Rushmore. Thanks once again to Ben Lyons, who is always animated. The best animated movies. I mean, this is impossible. I'm already getting ready for everyone who's going to hate this list. Cinephile Pod. You can tweet me or Adnan S. Verk. All right. The best animated movies of all time. Aladdin, I'm in there, okay? Aladdin's unbelievable. Very rare to get the Arab world portrayed on screen, so I was very happy to see Aladdin come out back in 1992 when I was 14 years old and seeing people... Uh, 
you know, seeing some brown people on screen in an anime movie. I was happy to see that, all right? And I also I loved Robin Williams as a genie. He was incredible. The fact he's so funny and he's just all over the place with his references and, I mean, the way his brain was working. He kept joking afterwards, saying, people say you've never been better. Great. I, I'm a, just a big blue guy. I'm building up the, the best performance of my life. Aladdin, also great soundtrack, right? Friend Like Me and Whole New World. I love it. So Aladdin is going to make my uh, Mount Rushmore here. Now, I know Joe's going to get a little more esoteric, so I'm going to count on him to give me a uh, Kubo and the two strings. Uh, I kind of want to go Hunchback in Notre Dame, but instead I will go with Monsters, Inc., because I'm a huge fan, again, of the chemistry of Billy Crystal and John Goodman and the uh, wonderful story of Sully and Boo. So Monsters, Inc. is definitely in there. Great work here from Pixar. Up is incredible. Again, I got to have at least one anime movie, which isn't necessarily a kid's movie. And yeah, there's a chunky kid in there, and they've got balloons and stuff, but it's a very serious film. The first 10 minutes of Up is about as good as it gets. I mean, that is a silent movie right there. I mean, one shot in particular where they're celebrating the birth of a baby, and then boom, head falls when they finally have a miscarriage. It's like a 12-second shot, and it's just set to Michael Giacchino's incredible score. Up absolutely is in there. So the three films so far I've included, the best anime movies of all time, Aladdin, Up, and Monsters, Inc., I mean, I'd love to get Inside Out in there, but let's just go ahead and get Toy Story. I mean, no one's going to complain about getting Toy Story in there. Obviously, a fantastic movie. As I'm doing this now, Joe, I feel like we've done this before. I feel like you've given love to Boss Baby. This may be a repeat of Mount Rushmore of animated movies, but instead, I'm going to give it to Aladdin, Toy Story, Up, and Monsters, Inc. Have we done this before? Uh, I believe we did Pixar animated movies. Mm, okay, thank you, because I was definitely getting uh, you know acid reflux here. Like, something's happening. I was feeling like uh, Yogi Berra. Okay, that's my Mount Rushmore of movies. It was not Pixar. You're right. Aladdin, Toy Story, Up, Monsters, Inc. Go ahead and give us Chicken Run. <laughs> I wish. I'll put that on my honorable mention for this week. Uh, okay. I will also, for honorable mention, will put Kubo and the Two Strings. I absolutely loved that movie the first time I saw it. But I do want to get one stop-motion movie on there, and that's Coraline from 2009, which I, I, I loved that movie so much. Uh, have you ever seen it? I haven't. I've heard of it, though. I remember I got nominated for sure. Oh, it's great. Wait till October to watch it, and then watch it with your kids. It's really, it's really sweet and really well done. Nice. And then this one, I mentioned it the other week, and this is more for your brother, Adnan, so, uh, so if he's listening, but watch yeah. Spirited oh. Away by Miyazaki. Um, nice. Really, really, really great movie. And then I completely agree with you on Up. So I have to throw Up onto my Mount Rushmore. And you're right. The first 10 minutes is a, a silent film, and they take you through every single emotion. And it's a children's movie. You know, uh, I feel like that's so incredibly hard to do. So Up is on there. And then I'll go with The Lion King 2. Um, mm. Not The Lion King 2, The Lion King, the uh, 1992. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'll throw that one on there, too. Also, because as a kid watching that, I had no idea this was Shakespeare, and Disney just slipped that in there, and I didn't know that that was a thing. So definitely Lion King. Those are my four. I was going to say, no one's going to complain about Lion King. Hamlet, there's lots of stuff going on there. Subtext. I mean, listen, there's so many we could have had here. Wreck-It Ralph is fantastic. John C. Riley is so good in that movie. I mean, Waking Life, if you want to go a little Richard Linklater. Wally, you know, Steamboat Willie back in 1928. Even if we had the original Pinocchio or Peter Pan, I mean, Cinderella, Dumbo. Honestly, there's been a lot of great animated films over the years, and uh, yeah, hey, even the original Bambi we could have squeezed in there as well. So definitely lots of good choices. A Anna Melissa, I mean, that's what Charlie Coffin did that movie a few years ago. There's definitely been a lot out there. All right, let us know what your favorite Mount Rushmore is as far as anime movies are concerned. Now it's time for Total Recall.
Call. All right, now it's time for Total Recall. As I mentioned earlier, in terms of independent films, they did not do well this year at the Oscars, which is unfortunate. I think that's because they didn't have as much time between the nominations and the actual awards. The fact the Oscars are on February 9th, I mean, that's as early as it gets. Normally, you think of the Oscars, it's like the first weekend of March, March 2nd, March 4th, something like that. So the indies were just tough to break through. The studios really showed their muscle. But in terms of a time when the independent films ruled, that would be 1996. They broke through in a big way at the Oscars held for 1997. So Total Recall 1997, the movies from 96, known generally within the business as the year the indies took over. Best picture. What do we have, Joe? We have The English Patient, Fargo, Jerry Maguire, Secrets and Lies, and Shine. All really good movies. Um, certainly Jerry Maguire is eminently quotable from Cameron Crowe. The English Patient I don't think holds up. It's quite boring, to be honest with you. If you tried to watch it again, I think. I mean, they tried to be like Lawrence of Arabia, but I, I didn't think it was masterful. I certainly don't think it was a best picture worthy. I thought it had some moments and was well acted and had the kind of romantic sweep to it. But a best picture English. I mean, when's the last time somebody sat around and said, listen, I can't wait to watch The English Patient again. Like, that's not <laughs> happening. So obviously it should have been Fargo. I mean, as... Gene Siskel, the late film critic, once put it, and he's seen like, you know, 10,000 movies. You know, he had once said, I could watch Fargo once a week. I could watch it every day. I mean, he said it's in his top 10 movies of all time. And his reasoning was, he said, it's a film noir. It's a romantic comedy. It's a drama. It's a crime film. Like, it is everything. It is its own film festival. And it's a movie made by film lovers and the Coen brothers. And yet, with all these homages to other things, it's completely unique and completely distinctive. Fargo is also one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, you betcha, yeah. That should have won Best Picture. I 100% agree with you. And, and you have to understand, this week for Total Recall, I cannot look at this objectively, being a native Minnesotan. So. I was about to say, you can talk about the accents and all that kind of area of uh, you know North Dakota, what it's all like. Oh, it's it's... I mean, well, the accents are overdone. Us Minnesotans have yes. a qualm with that because we're we're like, yes, it we it is noticeable, but they're overdone in that movie. But just like the subtleties, being Minnesotan, that they throw in that only someone from the state would get that sort of reference, or you know, two people talking. Eh, what do you look like? Yeah, kind of funny looking. <laughs> uh, in what sense? Uh, eh, generally, you know, stuff like that is nuanced and i feel like if you're from the state you pick it up and they did such a good job at incorporating everything you just said but also making it a film about minnesotans too so we don't really get a lot of shine uh so i'll say fargo for sure i know if there'd been a kirby pocket reference or two i would have appreciated that but you're right they definitely nailed minnesota in all its glory how about best director we have anthony mighella the english patient joel cohen fargo milos foreman the people versus larry flint Mike Lee for Secrets and Lies, and Scott Hicks for Shine. Scott Hicks never replicated his success that he did with Shine. Mike Lee is, of course, a great British director who always humanizes his characters really well, and uh, Secrets and Lies is really well done. Brenda Blethyn in particular is wonderful in the movie. We'll get to Best Actress in a second. Foreman, uh, you know his name, obviously, from Amadeus, and um, you know he took a, a guy in Larry Flint who was certainly controversial but believed in freedom of speech. Whether or not it's naked women or not, hey, we got to do what we got to do. So Foreman obviously is a Hollywood royalty. And Mingella, who passed away a few years ago, won Best Director. But come on, let's be honest. Joel Cohn, absolute no-brainer. The way it's shot, the way the snow feels like another character, the landscape of it, the performances, balancing all that together. It's nice and tight. It's efficient. It's Joel Cohn's masterpiece. You should have won Best Director for Fargo. 110% agree with you. Has to be Joel Cohn. How about Best Actor? 
Jeffrey Rush for Shine, Tom Cruise for Jerry Maguire, Ralph Fiennes for The English Patient, Woody Harrelson, The People vs. Larry Flint, and Billy Bob Thornton for Sling Blade. I fried chicken and taters. <laughs> Should have been Billy Bob Thornton. Are you kidding me? A previous guest on Cinefile, if you haven't listened to it, take a look back. Billy Bob was one of my favorite guests ever, one of my favorite people. He was incredible as Carl Childers. He came up with that character. Some folks called it a Kaiser Blade. I called it a Sling Blade. Sling Blade is incredible. I mean, it's, 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 his, it's his masterpiece and what he's defined for in many ways. He should have won an Oscar. Woody was really a lot of fun in People vs. Larry Flint. Ray Fiennes is always an excellent actor playing Laszlo. Cruz and Jerry Maguire, as much as I have disdain for him, uh, he is very charismatic. And Jeffrey Rush, um, again, a really tough character to play. But as you know from Tropic Thunder, you know, whenever the character has an ailment, it's always a kind of a leaning towards in that direction. So once, you know, he's, you know, kind of going in that direction, you knew the Academy would reward him as well. That's not to take away from the performance. Obviously, Jeff Rush is very good and shy in playing this pianist who's uh, dealing with a lot of, you know, demons and such. But my vote would have gone to Billy Bob. Yeah, I, I agree with you on this too. You're you're right. It, it's Billy Bob's best role is his masterpiece. I didn't Jeffrey Rush though learn how to play the piano for Shine. He did. I mean, again, I, I'm probably not giving him enough due because he is really compelling in the role. And like I said, it, it embraced the effort of playing this piano prodigy. And the fact he learned the piano, you're right. That's that's pretty notable. Gotcha. All right, I would still go with Billy Bob. That movie's great, and he's great in that movie. How about uh, best actors? Francis McDormand. Fargo, Brenda Blithen for Secrets and Lies, Diane Keaton for Marvin's Room, Kristen Scott Thomas for The English Patient, and Emily Watson, no relation to Emma Watson, Breaking the Waves. Never saw Marvin's Room, so I can't speak to that, even though De Niro's in it. Maybe I did see it. It's just utterly forgettable to me. English Patient, I don't think Kristen Scott Thomas brought much to the table. Emily Watson is fantastic in Breaking the Waves. You talk about an indie movie that people you know, within the industry love, Breaking the Waves, Lars von Trier. I mean, she loves her man so much. She prays for a miracle. Uh, she also has some issues playing this you know, simpleton waif who speaks to God. and I mean, she's very, very eccentric at times, but it's an incredible performance. So I would have loved to see Emily Watson win as Bess. Also no issue with the aforementioned Brenda Blethen in Secrets and Lies, playing a working-class mother, the real archetype of a Mike Lee movie. And she really feels lived in as one of those British characters that he uh, so often has a fondness for. But the Academy absolutely got it right. It's one of the most indelible roles ever by a female actress. Frances McDormand playing Marge Gunderson, who is not only funny, but charming and smart and ruthless when need be. She's amazing. 100% agree. Yeah, she it has to go to her. I can't speak to Breaking the Waves, but that's ringing endorsement for that movie, so I'll definitely check out Emily Watson's oh, performance yeah. in that. It's she in particular. The movie is uh, at times becomes a little bit unruly, but she's unbelievable in the movie. Absolutely. Best Supporting Actor. Cuba Gooding Jr., Jerry Maguire, William H. Macy, Fargo, Armin Mueller-Stahl for Shine, Edward Norton, Primal Fear, and James Wood for Ghosts of Mississippi. I mean, these are all really good choices. I mean, you can make a case for Edward Norton. His breakthrough performance in Primal Fear is Aaron Stampler. James Wood's playing a virulent racist in Byron Della Beckwith. I mean, he, he really chewed some scenery in Ghosts of Mississippi, which was a very average movie. Alec Baldwin felt very miscast in the film, but Woods was fantastic. Um, and Cuba, obviously, you know, show me the money and all the rest. It really was very charismatic. But I'm going to go with William H. Macy because you don't see characters like this rewarded. I mean, he's just a loser. He's a sniveling coward who hired some guys to kill his wife or at least, excuse me, to kidnap her. 
and then, you know, reap the ransom money because he can't stand up to his dad. I mean, the scene of William H. Macy, you know, practicing the call to his father-in-law was amazing. His acting was so, oh, geez, they got her. Oh, geez. Then he picks up the phone and actually does it. I mean, even the first scene where he's explaining to Bashemi that what he wants to have happen. I mean, oh, even when they catch him, wearing that white shirt, I'll be right there one minute. And he just <laughs> seems, his head's half out the window. I mean, it, even the fact he's, he's trying to sell the fact he's going to give that guy a good deal on this true coat. He can, he's, we've never done this before. I can knock up a hundred bucks off that true coat. I mean, Bill Macy, Fargo, Jerry Lundegaard, incredible. Oh, I love it. And I also just love how incredulous he seems at the <laughs> fact that everything is happening to him when he's doing this terrible, terrible thing as well. Um, so yeah, I would give it to William H. Macy for sure. Yeah, ma'am, I answered your question. I answered the door. <laughs> I'm cooperating here. <laughs> He's so good. <laughs> That's good. All right. Supporting actors. Juliet Binoche for The English Patient. Joan Allen for The Crucible. Laura Bacall for The Mirror Has Two Faces. Barbara Hershey for The Portrait of a Lady. And Marianne Jean-Baptiste for Secrets and Lies. Marianne Jean-Baptiste, because she's excellent as Hortense Cumberbatch in Secrets and Lies. And I would have liked to see that film get rewarded. So I actually would have given it just on merit alone. I have no issue with Juliet Binoche winning. She was very charming and fetching playing Hannah in The English Patient. But it should have been Lauren Bacall. I mean, Hollywood royalty. Never won an Academy Award just for the fact, you know, her performances with Bogey. You know how to whistle, don't you? Just put your lips together and blow. She should have won for The Mirror Has Two Faces, which again, forgettable film, but an incredible actress. Yeah, I I will go. I can't speak to that movie, and I will check out that again, but I'll go with Julia Binoche. All right, how about original screenplay? Fargo, Ethan and Joel Cohen, Jerry Maguire, Cameron Crowe, Lone Star, John Salis, Secrets and Lies, Mike Lee, and Shine, Jan Sardi, and Scott Hicks. I mean, those are five great scripts. I mean, I think the weakest of those is Shine. Even then, there's some moments in there that you wouldn't know much about, you know, this penis prodigy and the way it follows the familiar tales of, you know, troubled youth and all the rest of it. And these other four, wow. Secrets and Lies, again, Mike Lee, textbook about British working class. John Sayles' Lone Star, incredibly underrated. He's one of the great writers of our time. I mean, Eight Men Out's my favorite baseball movie. Sales is such a gifted writer. Lone Star has uh, parallels to Chinatown. Like, I'd love to watch that movie again. I'm going to watch Lone Star again in the next few months at some point. So I would have loved to see him win. Cameron Crowe, as I said, Jerry Maguire. I mean, that that's the template of romantic comedy. You complete me? I mean, how can that guy not win an Oscar for coming up with that line and all those memorable speeches and the way that Cruz is standing up for his ethics? But of course, the answer was right. Ethan and Joel Cohn deservedly won for Fargo, which is one of the heavyweight champs in terms of original screenplays. And for those three people in Brainerd, and for what? For a little bit of money? You know, there's a little more to life than a little money, you know. Uh, I would have to go with Fargo for sure. So good to just tell this guy that freaking he's the back of a car after she almost threw up in morning sickness. I think I'm going to barf. All right. How about best adapted screenplay? Sling the Blade, Billy Bob Thornton, The Crucible, Arthur Miller, The English Patient, Anthony McNella, and Hamlet, Kenneth Branagh, and Train Spotting, John Hodge. Well, listen, I, I, can't, I like Kenneth Branagh, but I'm not giving it to Hamlet. Like, how are you adapting Hamlet? Like, I mean, that, how much did he actually change? I, 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 I don't remember Hamlet offhand that well, his version at least, but there's no way I would give it to Kenneth Branagh. He adapted to Hamlet. Okay, so you took the greatest writer of all time and just put in a bunch of his speeches. Okay, would you change a word here or two? Like, how, how are you going to win? So no chance on Branagh. Trainspotting, I've never read the original book, but obviously I'm a big fan of the film, which is really well done. So I'm glad that John Hodge was nominated. In fact, now looking at the list, it almost feels like it's a little bit shocking that Trainspotting didn't do better. Like that movie was so powerful that it wasn't nominated for Best Picture or Best Director or Ewan McGregor. 
McGregor wasn't nominated, so that's interesting. So I'm glad Hodge got nominated at least. English Patient, again, I've already mentioned it's a solid film, but it's not a great film. The Crucible, Arthur Miller. Listen, Death of a Salesman was better. We're not going to give this guy an Oscar 50 years later after he wrote it. So it'd have to go to Billy Bob Thornton, which was the correct move based on his own short film, Some Folks Call It a Sling Blade. Yeah, I would uh, completely agree with you on that. I, I think a case could be made for train spotting, or maybe that's just my own uh, affinity that I have for that movie. But yeah, Sling Blade and Billy Bob Thornton in it. It's classic. Yeah, it's not a bad call. Like if you want to spread the wealth, like maybe Billy Bob Thornton should have won for Best Actor and Screenplay could have given to Hodge for Train Spine. That would have been a nice way to at least uh, divvy up the love, so to speak. Anyways, thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. Enjoy the Academy Awards this Sunday. We'll be back next week, not only recapping the Oscars with New York Times film critic Manola Dargis, but also reviews of films including the very funny comedy Good Boys and a documentary that my guy Joe is going to love as a sound engineer. It's called Making Waves, and it's all about the importance of sound in film. I've already seen it, and it's fantastic. I'm going to tell you all about it next time. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.